This is the Annex A Sociology Podcast. I'm Joseph Cohen from Queens College in the City University of New York. Today we discuss housing policy and inequality. Our guest is Brian McCabe from Georgetown University. My co-hosts for the episode are Leslie Hinkson from Georgetown University and Gabriel Rossman from UCLA. Our discussion was recorded on January 8th, 2019. And now we turn to Brian McCabe of Georgetown University. Brian authored No Place Like Home, Wealth, Community, and the Politics of Home Ownership with Oxford University Press. It's a book that talks about home ownership and its role in Americans' personal economic fortunes and its central role in American society. It's a fascinating topic and a pleasure to meet you. Welcome, Brian. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So home ownership is a big thing in America. And I thought maybe you could get us started by like painting us a picture of how housing and home ownership specifically shapes people's uh, personal fortunes. Like how important is home ownership in the big picture of, you know, how well people do? Yeah, for sure. I mean, one of the things that I um, that I talk about in the beginning of the book is when you ask people um, about sort of what constitutes the American dream, right? Sending your kids off to college, doing better than your parents did, um, sort of ride, climbing the social ladder. Um, owning a home continues to be sort of at the very, very top of that list. Um, and what was sort of striking to me, I wrote uh, the beginning of this book kind of on the, on the heels of the housing crisis, um, is that that commitment to home ownership sort of very... didn't dip very much. It did not dip very much, right? So there was this sort of brief period where homeownership seemed a little bit less important, um, but it sort of rebounded very quickly to continue to be sort of one of the things that um, Americans hold dear. And so that's sort of kind of how I got started in the book, thinking about um, the different reasons that people want to buy a home, right? And Mm -hmm. so the, the kind of one that we go back to the most is the the promise of building wealth through home ownership. But there are a lot of other reasons when you talk to people about why they want to own a home, um, about what they say, right? So they talk about um, having a place that's theirs, the security of home ownership, right? The, the sort of um, uh, the idea of building communities through home ownership, of staying in a place for a long time. Um, so it's not just the the kind of financial side of home ownership that's important to people, but it's all these other um, kind of aspects of it. And in Thinking about home ownership as a sociologist, part of what I wanted to do was right, kind of wrestle this idea away from economists. I feel like economists um, have been the, the the sort of primary researchers on home ownership to the degree that we think of this as right, mostly about building wealth, mm-hmm. um, kind of ceded control to the economists. In the book, I wanted to kind of bring some other sociological ideas about strengthening communities and about civic engagement and some of the other meaning around home ownership back. So, so what do you get for owning a home? Uh, well, I own a condo and it's an extraordinary headache. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, but you know, what, what do you get? So, so I think that there are financial returns on it, right? And, and I say in the book, um, the kind of consensus is that if you have a, um, a good mortgage in a good neighborhood and you hold on to it for a long, for a long time, right? Homeownership still is one of the best wealth building tools that we have. Mm-hmm. Um, but you get a lot of other things from it too. I think people get a sense of security, um, kind of physical, physical security, right? A place that they often feel safe. Um, there's a, I think a really important social status associated with it, right? This idea that we sort of see homeowners as 
people that have succeeded, that have done well, that are, you know, independent, that sort of made it. So um, there's that part of it. Um, there are some other benefits that I don't talk about in the book, but benefits, um, health benefits associated with home ownership, sort of mental health benefits, um, right? Sort of knowing that your your payments are not going to change month to month, they're not going to change very much month to month. So, so I think that there are still a lot of benefits that individuals do see from from home ownership. In uh, I, I've I've done a little bit of work on home ownership, and one thing that struck me uh, in, in doing my book was uh, how home ownership is sort of like the ticket to accessing the neighborhoods with good schools and the neighborhoods, you know, with quality public services and good hospitals and libraries. Like in America, these communities tend to do their best to restrict cheap rental housing. And, uh, and so some of owning a home is just being able to get into non-distressed communities. Yeah. And I think, I mean, that's actually the, the, one of the central points of the book, right, is to say that we tend to think of homeowners as um, sort of being more involved in their communities, right? They're better citizens. They vote more often. They volunteer more often. They attend, you know, PTA meetings and they do volunteer work and they're kind of more active citizens. Mm-hmm. But what I want to do, what I do in the book is to, to sort of think about why that's the case, right? What are they protecting? And I argue that, you know, some of this is just about residential stability. Homeowners are in um, a place for a longer time and sort of stability leads to greater involvement in communities. But some of this, of course, is about protecting property values, right? Mm-hmm. So um, when a homeowner is working to uh, make sure that a, you know, a land use they don't want is in their neighborhood, when they're working to oppose affordable housing developments, right? That kind of stuff that shows up when we measure community engagement and political participation, right? That stuff's also you know, not always good for a community or not always good for a community as a whole. Um, and so that's part of what I want to do in the, the book is to say that um, homeowners do tend to be more involved in their communities than renters, but there are right often very negative consequences of this kind of exclusionary politics of being involved as a way to keep other people out of your neighborhood. Well, so one of the things I would say about, I say about that, and I, so first of all, I want to say I did read the book, really loved it, mm. um, as you know, um, but I will say that I really do think that one of the reasons why homeowners are more involved than renters is because that's how the system is set up, right? Um, And I think very often renters are actually made to feel as though they don't have as much of a say, right? right? Um, And so if that's how the system is, is set up, right, then you know, what can be done? What kinds of policies can you implement to try and sort of like undo that kind of hierarchy that exists like between renters and homeowners in certain spaces? That's number one. Um, and number two, um, I actually think that there are some, you know, in, in some places, even in suburbia, like Montgomery County, where I live um, in, in Maryland, where you know, they're build, totally building up the downtown, yeah. right? Um, and they're building these luxury apartment buildings. Well, Montgomery County has a provision that says, well, if you are building uh, a residential space that has more than X number of units, you need to set aside this many units, right, um, as affordable housing. Right. And number one, that's one of the ways in which you get... Um, lower income and that includes you know poverty level working class and also lower middle class um 
residents to move into a high rent, if you will, district, right, that does have really good schools, that does have great services, um, while also, you know, helping to alleviate any kind of fear that many of the residents, um, even in such a quote unquote liberal uh, county, um, that they they will be overrun by, you know, the have nots. Yeah. Oh, come on. The, the, the problem with that is that it, it just raises the costs. And so um, perversely inclusive uh, zoning, you know, can actually lead to less construction because if you say, you know, you can only- Not in Bethesda. Well, maybe in Bethesda because you see such a hot market, but in general, um, if you say half the units have to be reserved or a third of the units have to be reserved for uh, non-market rate housing, you're effectively driving up the cost of, you know, the, the profitable units, meaning that you can only build super luxury units. Um, and, you know, you arguably would get, I, I know housing people who say, and, you know, maybe Brian disagrees with this, but, uh, or maybe it's just a different skill set that would be required for this analysis. But I know housing people who say that you'd be, you would get more construction with uh, if you just didn't have the um, the requirements for inclusive zoning. And it's probably true that the new construction would mostly be luxury housing, but it would be cheaper luxury housing. It would be $3,000 a month for a two-bedroom instead of $4,000 a month for a bedroom, new bedroom, which is what new construction costs in Los Angeles. Um, and also through housing filtering, you would end up getting the uh, socioeconomic mix anyway. So for instance, if they didn't have those types of requirements, um, I would probably move into new construction and pay $3,000 a month. And then some poorer person would move into my apartment. And so you'd still have more economic diversity uh, and lower rents. Well, here's the thing. I, I don't know. So no, so Gabriel, I totally get your point. Um, I think one of one of the big takeaway points from what you said, um, initially, at least, is that, you know, different policies actually work better, like in different places. So you need to be really careful about, like thinking about having these blanket policies. And then, but also number two, I think part of the rationale for doing this isn't, I, I mean, it's to ensure that that low income people aren't segregated perpetually from everyone else. So, I mean, if well, it wouldn't be perpetually, you'd get filtering. It may in the short run, you might, but once the construction gets to be a few years old, it, you know, the, the, it would be less valuable and then you would get housing filtering and you'd have more of a, so a just for, right, for background but filtering how, is a process where it's a vacancy chain for apartments. So yeah. So like when somebody builds a really nice apartment, the, the, the new apartments go to rich people because when you build a new apartment, it only costs an extra couple thousand dollars to put in marble countertops and that kind of shit that mean you can double <laughs> the rent. <laughs> yeah. And then, um, and so it's way worth it to make a luxury. It only costs like, I don't know, 10% more to make a luxury apartment than it does to make a non-luxury apartment. So of course you're going to make a luxury apartment because you can charge twice as much and, and the construction costs are marginally you know, higher. Nothing. Right. Yeah. yeah. They're, they're, and, and so to first approximation, all new construction is luxury construction. But you know, after a building is 20 years old, it's not that luxurious anymore. It's a little bit out of fashion. It's starting to get worn down. The paint looks like shit. Right. So, um, pass it down to the you know, that's not what I, I don't, yeah, exactly. Oh yeah. my god, Brian, <laughs> sorry, we digress. We digress. Sorry, there. Brian, go, go. 
I almost had to run over to your office, Leslie. <laughs> yeah, the mic. No, I mean, I think, you know, filtering happens in a world of economists, right? Where, um, where we think outside of constraints, right? So filtering with like, like if you think of trading in your car after three years, right? For you make a lot yeah. more money now, you want a new car. The cost of trading in your car is extremely low, right? You're, you, you don't have a social network around your car. Your church isn't in the neighborhood where your car is, right? So, so people actually don't sort of filter housing in the way that, um, that we think of it as this sort of easy commodity where you just make a little bit more money and you get a better house. And a couple of years later, you make a little more money and you get a bigger house, right? That, that's it's just sort of... You, you can still keep all those Tibu goods if you just move within the same neighborhood. Well, which, <laughs> right. But there's, but there's costs of doing that too. Uh, and you know, housing is so spatially segregated that right, if you want to upgrade from your you know, from one apartment to, to the next, right, you often can't just do it in the same neighborhood with the, the same sort of walkable things. I mean, I think you, you do make a good point about the supply constraints, right? So what we mm-hmm. want to do and what people that sort of advocate for um, uh, sort of this is just a supply problem is we need to lift supply constraints that limit the amount of housing construction that's happening. So we're working on a project in DC, sort of DC Metro, looking though at where it is that new housing construction is happening and what's fascinating about it. And this is the story of, you know, kind of all metros right now is it's happening in the exurbs, right? In places that are really, really um, sort of far away from from the central city. Um, I think, you know, the Bethesda example is really interesting to me because I think there's also this sort of misnomer, and, and I talk about it a bit in the book, about what affordable housing actually means, right? Mm-hmm. So in Bethesda, right, they're probably using tax credit dollars to, to, to build... Um, Right, to build high tech units, affordable units in these um, mixed income developments. And those are probably geared at people making 60% of the median income, right? So in DC, kind of DC Metro, the median income is $110,000. So 60% is, you know, $65,000. So, so we're not actually talking about housing, like poor families or low income yeah. families, or even like, like we're basically talking about like very middle income families. It's um, above the yeah. national median. Well, so the one thing I will say about that, Brian, and this is again just the Montgomery County example, yeah. is that you're totally right. The vast majority of the people who end up actually applying for these house for for these units, right, actually are right where it is you're saying. But I also know people who make significantly less money than that who also have, who were able to secure spaces in these luxury buildings. Right. right? But they're, but they're, the rents in those buildings are going to be set so that somebody making $65,000 doesn't have to pay more than a third of their income, 30% of their income. So Mm -hmm. it is true that people that make less money can get those units, but at a rent that's affordable to somebody making $65,000, right? So they're cost burdened because they're living in this unit that was actually, you know, built and financed for a wealthier family than, than them. I mean, this is the, the sort of fundamental problem with our low income housing policy is we're actually not building housing for the very, very bottom, right? Because we've taken the state almost entirely out of it, turned it over exclusively to the market. And there's no sort of financial, right? There, there's no financial way to build housing for, for somebody making twenty. No, but you but you don't build housing for poor people. You build housing for rich and middle class people, and then eventually it degrades, and then the salvage value is housing for poor people. Well, that's people. the American way. That's not the only possible yeah, system. Yeah, exactly. 
<laughs> no, it's not the American way. The American way is you don't build housing at all. <laughs> if, if there was an American way, that would be the American way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Brian, so one of the th- one, like one of the things um, that I, I thought your book made very clear to um, to people who aren't um, who 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 don't have uh, any knowledge of the ways in which government policies have actually led to number one, not just encouraging own, uh, home ownership, but also um, limiting like sort of the prospects of home ownership for certain types of people. Um, and I was wondering if you'd want to talk about that a yeah, little totally. bit. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a chapter in the book that's about the mortgage deduction. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when we talk about the subsidies that um, that we give to to housing in the U.S., right? We talk about housing vouchers and tax credits, um, but the mortgage interest deduction is right one of the largest deductions um, in the federal tax code. Right, goes exclusively to homeowners, obviously, but not just to homeowners, to uh, homeowners that itemize their deductions. Right, so um, it goes to kind of upper middle class and upper class homeowners. And I have some graphs in the book that just sort of show how unequal um, the deduction is. Should you and, still be and, using the present tense? What's that? Should you still be using the present tense? Oh yeah, I mean the the uh, the change in the the change in deductible income was right was from million dollar mortgages to seven hundred fifty thousand dollar mortgages. I mean it's very um, yeah. We should still be using the present tense. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean the standard and the standard deduction went up, right? So few. No, but I mean, middle- well, in Los Angeles, I'd like you to show me a place that I could get for seven hundred fifty thousand dollars. You make a great realtor if you could find one for me. <laughs> right. Right. So, I, I, you know, and, and then on top of that, you know, um, the state and local tax deduction went away. So, I, I mean, to the extent that housing prices well, are especially rising uh, in uh, basically blue states, uh, well, big cities and blue states, uh, you know, th- th- you, we should eventually see some change from the uh, last year's tax bill because some of those subsidies have been clawed back incrementally. I mean, I, I agree yeah. with you that there's still but big subsidies for housing in our tax policy. But uh, not quite as bad as two years ago. Well, but I mean, even even if that's the case, so I agree with you, not quite as bad as two years ago. I mean, to to the the federal government subsidized spends a hundred billion dollars subsidizing uh, home mortgages mm-hmm. last year, um, twenty billion dollars on the entire housing choice voucher program, right? The sort of primary tool that we have for assisting low income housing. So so you're right to say that you know 2019 maybe maybe. Uh, better for twenty eight, better than twenty eighteen, but it's still mm-hmm. extraordinary compared to the amount of money that we spend on right low income rental programs, right? Yeah, um, and these are you know, and, and homeowners and homeowners making a substantial amount of money. Those of us that itemize our our taxes, right? We're we're sort of the least in need of housing subsidy, uh, right. and we're primary beneficiary of it. So I think the the principle still stands, even if right they've been sort of slightly clawed back. Oh, I, uh, I agree with you completely that mortgage interest deduction is still a middle class entitlement. And in general, a lot of middle class entitlements um, dwarf transfers to the poor. But sure. I, I am saying that there has been some improvement on that. Absolutely. Some some marginal improvement. But I think, I mean, I think sure. Agreed. the other thing to, to, to put it in, right, is not only is like, so it's right, it's costly, it's really expensive to the federal government, it's regressive, it doesn't actually help sort of poor families for sure, or even middle-class families on the margins of home ownership, right? So unless you itemize your 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 deductions, right, you're not going to be able to take it. So it's not the kind of tool that even incentivizes people that are almost able to buy a home. Now, I would I would contend that that might not be the best goal of housing policy anyway, mm-hmm. but but if that 
if we want that to be the goal of housing policy, if we want to encourage people to own their own homes, right, the mortgage interest deduction is sort of not even good for that. And then you sort of add on to it, I think, the argument from the book, which is that um, it's sort of encouraging people in their communities to sort of right, clamp down and protect their property values uh, sort of at all costs and, and sort of the cost of it is right, more inclusive communities. So, Brian, so, you know, in the perfect world, in the universe that is totally orchestrated by by Brian McCabe, yeah. um, what yeah. uh, and, you know, and specifically in uh, an urban American universe, uh, yeah. what po- like what would be your primary mechanisms for uh not even for, I wouldn't even say for ensuring home ownership. I would basically say for ensuring uh, people having a home. Yeah. Or, or how about, well, just well-being, like people, people's overall well-being. Well, we're talking about housing here, dude. Well, yeah, but housing <laughs> is not just the space you live in. Like in America, it's a vehicle for accessing other essential services. Right. And like, it's not just right. about living indoors. It's true. There's a lot that yeah, you're true. buying a lot more than just a, a space to live when you buy a house. Yeah, no, that's right. And and I think that there are ways to think about sort of decoupling the idea of home ownership from lots of the benefits that go with it, right? Yeah. So, so we might think that there are benefits to residential stability, right? The, the ability to stay in a neighborhood that you know and near the services that are important to you and in your social networks, right? And so we can imagine even for low-income renters or renters in a city like Los Angeles, right, that are being displaced as neighborhoods change and gentrify and they can't afford those rents, mm-hmm. right? We can imagine... Um, Uh, some sort of subsidy, like a gentrification subsidy or voucher-like subsidy that enables us to sort of decouple the idea um, of like residential stability and and subsidize that, right? So we could do that. I think that there are some other models of home ownership that are not the kind of standard, um, you know, like buy a house in the suburbs, um, kind of put all your money in that investment and then sort of do everything you can to make that property value go up. We can think of, um, right, there are examples of shared equity co-ops, right? Um, there are examples of uh, land trust, community land trust. So I think that the the sort of, in my mind, the policy goal is to kind of decouple all of these things from each other, um, to think about ways that we can help people build wealth that might be outside of home ownership. Right now, we sort of see it as the primary tool for for building wealth in the United States, and it is a good tool, but it doesn't have to be the only one. And then to think of all these sort of attenuate benefits that we get from home ownership and to, to kind of unravel them from that. I remember uh, reading about home ownership, like if you are in a a well-heeled neighborhood that manages to insulate itself, it's a good investment. But I remember hearing that on average, real estate is a poor investment on average like the returns the annual returns are low if you buy the typical home but the typical home might be like a home in york pennsylvania or you know well i i think that my sense is that what your sort of average economist would say is that if you get a standard 30-year mortgage um if you buy it in a decent neighborhood and if you hold on to it for a long time right Right. you're sort of you, the, the way you're making money in the end is by paying regularly paying down your your mortgage loan. Now, some of us right might own in Los Angeles or DC and buy at a time just before kind of housing housing values skyrocket, and so we're making money in two ways, right, by climbing housing prices and by paying like paying down a loan. Um, but that's the sort of caveat I think to all of it, which is that right, it's a a long-term mortgage in a decent neighborhood where property values are at least stable um, and held for a long time, and it ends up still being a good. So, so what, what I understand, if I understand you correctly, what, so wait, wait, can I push back a little on that though? Can I push? Well, let me let me just jump in. So, uh, what I understand 
and I, I kind of agree with this, is like, let's say that you had a choice between paying $2,000 a month in rent and then taking $1,000 a month and putting it in an index fund or paying $3,000 for a mortgage. Right. The, and in some mathematical model that some finance economists have published somewhere, they'd say that you could make, a, you know, in the median neighborhood, you could make more money with the index fund. But the problem with that is nobody's going to actually stick to putting that money in the index fund. They're... You know, well, there, sure. there, there, there's going to be a time where it's like you want to go to Disney World or, you know, your kidneys braces or whatever. And so you don't, you know, you, you don't do the investment that one. Whereas the mortgage, you have to do the mortgage. So it's basically a commitment device to force you to save. Well, hold on, though. But there's a very important qualifier in what Brian's yeah. saying and what the, that the economists are saying in a decent neighborhood is what he's saying. And that's an important qualifier. Yeah. So, for example, it's my understanding that the one major explanation of uh, black families uh, difficulty accumulating wealth. Yeah, I was thinking that. It's, it's a huge explanation for the black-white wealth gap. Yes, it's that their, their, uh, mm-hmm. their homes are not appreciating like the economically segregated white neighborhoods. And if you get a genuinely middle-class house, like that's a house that's $200, $300. Like when you talk to, a, when you talk to economists or professors in general, they are... 10 percenters, right? And they are purchasing very, what they consider decent is in fact very nice. Right. And it's not a, it's not a vehicle that would be available to somebody earning 40 grand a year who might only have a budget of 200,000. And those are neighborhoods, uh, a house of $200,000 is going to have some downside potential in its housing. Like the, yeah. It could be in the Midwest where the city goes bottom up or, you know, anyhow, sorry, Brian, go. You know, and, and I think also, I mean, the, the, uh, Gabriel, the, the trade-off that you made of either three thousand dollars going to home ownership or two thousand dollars going to rent and a thousand dollars in index fund, right? Those aren't sort of comparable housing units, right? A two thousand dollar rental and a three thousand uh, dollar ownership unit. I think, right? The the way a lot of people would think about it is you have two thousand dollars going to rent or two thousand dollars going to home ownership, and at least, right, your two thousand dollars going to home ownership, a certain amount of that pays down your principal every year. So in the long run, when you go to right sell your home and pay back the bank, right, you owe sort of a lot less money on your mortgage. Well, I, I agree that that's true on average, but there's certainly, yes, you can certainly engineer it that way, right? So I know someone who rents a unit in a condo building. Yeah. All the other neighbors uh, own their condos, or at least most of them do. This person is renting a unit from someone who owns the condo and is paying much less in rent than they would be paying in a mortgage, but they're also not building equity. Right. So- Mm-hmm. And so in that case, they they versus their neighbor actually are making precisely that calculation. But right. there's, uh, am I going to pay two thousand for rent and then maybe save a thousand dollars in an index fund, or am I going to pay three thousand dollars and build equity? Right. But I agree with you that in general, when you rent, you're getting an apartment and it's in a denser neighborhood and blah blah blah. But it is possible yeah, to uh, also- rent a house in a single family uh, neighborhood or to um, you know sub you know buy a condo. I mean these. It's not a hundred percent correlated. Yeah, yeah but, but also there's there's like a very American aspect of this because like I think in part people systematically overpay for their housing because the penalties of living below your means are are larger here in the United States than they are elsewhere. 
And you realize that I know that this is implicitly oh everything's better in Canada, but you guys have a, a bubble and we don't anymore. Well, it, well, I mean, we'll see how it all plays out. In, yeah, like, we'll a see. A ten-year depression. Or you, not. you really think that uh, housing prices in Vancouver are going to keep skyrocketing? Not forever. No. No, I'm talking about in the U.S. I'm sure it, there are bubbles. There are bubbles in places in the U.S. today. No, but the my, the main uh, point the, in the U.S. it's mostly tied to job growth. No, but the the main point is not uh, like the main point that I'm making is because the United States has much less redistribution across local communities, if I, let's say, were an upper middle class person and I wanted to save money uh, on my housing and put that money in an index fund, I would go live in a lower middle class neighborhood. And the penalties for like in terms of my child's school funding or maybe in terms of my infrastructure access, I feel like the penalties are very high in the United States for living below your means. And it gives you much less room to save money on housing. And I think everybody's systematically crowding into neighborhoods that are above their means. Um, well, you're uh, you're kind of approaching the argument that Warren made when she was still an academic with a two-income trap and that sort of thing. I'm a very big fan of hers. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, okay, Brian. So, you know, we're here like try asking you to be a policy wizard, um, mm. but you are actually working on a project looking specific at a specific policy uh, mechanism, namely uh, housing vouchers. So do you want to talk to us about that a little bit? Yeah, for sure. So, so I've gone from thinking about policy at the, at the kind of top of the distribution, right? The mortgage interest deduction to thinking about um, policy at the bottom of the income distribution, right? About um, housing vouchers. So the sort of quick background story, right? Housing vouchers, um, Section 8 vouchers is what we commonly call them. Uh, If you win a housing voucher, you pay 30% of your income and then the federal government pays the rest, um, 30% of your income towards rent and the federal government pays the rest of the rent through a local public housing authority like the DC Housing Authority or the Housing Authority of the City of Los Angeles or something like that. So what's interesting to me about this is that... um, uh, housing vouchers are not an entitlement program. Um, in fact, housing vouchers are uh, lotteried off. They're basically um, people have to sign up for a wait list um, and you sign up for a wait list. And when your name gets called, when you get to the top of the wait list, uh, you get your housing voucher. Um, it's a really extraordinary system because there's thousands of public housing authorities in the U.S. Uh, and they all um, distribute their housing vouchers in different ways. So, for example, D.C., the DC Housing Authority had their voucher waitlist open um, for decades, and they closed it a couple years ago. The city has fourteen thousand vouchers. When they closed the waitlist, there were seventy thousand people on it. Um, there was some extraordinary statistic, like the the wait time for a one bedroom apartment with a voucher was going to be twenty eight years. Um, <laughs> and you know, it's it's in some ways an extreme example, but 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 actually not really. I mean, LA had their wait list closed for 13 years. They opened it up in 2017 for two weeks. Um, cities around the country are doing this. So so the next project is actually um, about that system. It's about this kind of system of wait lists and lotteries and how it is um, that local housing authorities make decisions about when to open their wait lists and when to close it. Um, Uh, how to select tenants, um, kind of different local preferences that they might have, and what it means for, right, what it means for the country, for um, our kind of welfare state, for the social safety net, to use, to to, to run our housing assistance programs as a lottery rather than um, an entitlement program. I always tell people, like, imagine if, um, imagine if Medicaid right, was run by a lottery, right? You sign up period, uh, a quarter of you would get it, and the other three quarters of you wouldn't. Or food stamps, right, were run by a lottery, right? You can only sign up 
uh, when the waitlist opens in five years. If you're lucky enough to get on the list, you might have to wait four or five years before you get your food stamps, right? But it's a really fascinating sort of um, program where we treat essentially equal people, right? Eligible households um, differently based on whether or not you're a winner of the of the lottery. So, um, well, that's it. That's great for research purposes. Oh yeah, no, it's it's uh, it is. That's why he's doing it, Gabriel. Yeah, <laughs> great for research purposes. Uh, it's right. less good for public policy, but it's great for research purposes. Why why aren't they just building building housing? Why doesn't the government just build a ton of housing, create like residential subdivisions and yeah. make a train well, there? Well, we, we gotta, <laughs> you used to be a Tory. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not, this is like why. Well, first of all, I mean, if it if it eases pressure, like, you know, why can't we have the people's workering housing block? <laughs> <laughs> well, the government did do that. Uh, you know, they did build big houses. Yeah, and it was such a success. Well, what what specifically failed about it? Like, why is it not viable? And like, what like what? Couldn't they figure out and had them just give up on things? Well, fundamentally, what happens is it created concentrated poverty and it became very unpleasant places to live, which is why they switched to Section 8 from concentrated housing projects, kind of the great society model. Yeah, and I think that that's the right. That's the big answer is that public housing developments concentrated poverty and disadvantage in right certain certain neighborhoods and segregated neighborhoods. But there are in between models, too. Right. So there um, there was a program where. Right, the federal or the the local housing authorities would lease private units and then sublease them to tenants. Right, so um, so the local government becomes the the intermediary. They're not building units, but they're the they're leasing units. Um, there are ways that we're incentivizing right private development through like tax credits, like we were right. talking about earlier. Um, so I think that there. I mean, I actually think the 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 answer is, and this will be the kind of final chapter of my next book is right. I don't think that you can house. Uh, poor people based on a market solution alone, and we sort of turn this over entirely to the market. That there needs right. to be um, right so, some government intervention in building people for whom uh, the the market will never build housing. Um, but yeah, I mean we're sort of out of the business of of building public housing, and we're actually in the business right of tearing down public housing. Originally, the most distressed public housing through Hope Six, and now right this transformation of the public housing stock through a program called RAD, which is essentially like like privatizing the public housing stock. So um, so that's certainly not the moment that we're at uh, in the U.S. We haven't been there for a while where the government has a sort of real role in building housing. Yeah, or subsidizing it the way they would subsidize middle-class housing with like the same vigor, you know? Right. Yep. It does All mean right. I've gotten to travel to uh, uh, like scores of public housing authorities. I think by the time this project is over, I probably will have visited uh, more public housing authorities across the country to do interviews. Uh That'll be my, my Guinness Book of World. on them? Are they, are they very modern and like innovative thinking or does it feel like an old-fashioned utility when you're engaging them? Like are they thinking about new housing models? And, yeah, you know, yeah, no, some of them, it's really fascinating. Some, there are some very, very innovative public housing authorities. There's, um, there's about 40 agencies that have a designation from HUD as moving to work agencies, which basically gives them kind of flexibility to innovate around program rules. Um, mm-hmm. there's, there's a ton of interesting things um, kind of happening in, in public housing authorities on the ground. And, you know, they, the, the variation is wide. Some of them are kind of very standard, like running a very standard program. And some of them are thinking really seriously about um, questions of self-sufficiency, about um, increasing the housing stock, about how you spread like scarce resources to help people that are the most at need. So there are a lot of innovative programs around it, but yeah, it varies. 
You've been listening to The Annex, a sociology podcast. You can visit us on the web, sociocast.org slash annex. We're on Facebook, The Annex Sociology Podcast, and on Twitter, at SociAnnex. Music is by Lena Orsa. Our producer is Lisseth Moreno. On behalf of my co-panelists, I'm Joe Cohen. Thanks for listening.